0: Hello, this is UCL Uncovering Politics. This week, we're beginning a new series of the podcast by surveying some of the big issues in politics around the world today. We'll be covering Ukraine, climate change, the health of democracy in the UK, and much more. Hello, my name is Alan Renwick, and welcome to a brand new series of UCL Uncovering Politics, the podcast of the School of Public Policy and Department of Political Science at University College London. The podcast has been on its summer break over the past few months, but politics certainly hasn't stopped. The war in Ukraine has rumbled on. The global energy crisis, partly a result of the war, has forced policymakers to rethink how energy markets work. The energy crisis intersects with efforts to tackle the climate crisis, which have in some ways intensified in the wake of last year's COP26 meeting in Glasgow. In the UK, Boris Johnson was forced out as Prime Minister and replaced by Liz Truss. And just days after Truss entered office, the death of Queen Elizabeth made headlines around the world. To discuss these issues and more, we're joined by a trio of top professors from the UCL Department of Political Science. Kristen Backe is Professor of Political Science and International Relations. She heads our Conflict and Change Research Cluster, and among other things, she's currently an investigator on a collaborative research project exploring geopolitical orientations in Russia's near abroad. Lisa Van Halle is professor of political science and works on the politics of climate change and the socio-legal study of human rights and equality. She's currently leading a major research project examining the politics of climate change loss and damage. And Meg Russell is Professor of British and Comparative Politics and Director of the UCL Constitution Unit. She's leading the unit's current project on constitutional principles and the health of democracy, and her latest book, The Parliamentary Battle Over Brexit, will be published by Oxford University Press in March next year. Welcome, Kristen, Lisa and Meg, to UCL Uncovering Politics. And we'll start with some quick words on Ukraine, then climate politics, and then UK politics, and then we'll try to dig a bit deeper into some of the interconnections between these important topics. And I should say that we're recording this about a week ahead of the podcast release date. And given just how fast the political world seems to move on these days, it is, of course, entirely possible that things could look quite different by the time you're listening to this. So let's start with Ukraine, and with Kristen. And so, Kristen, listeners, I'm sure will be familiar with the broad path that the war has taken. But would you like to give us your analysis of where the war has got to now and where it might be heading in the the coming period?
1: yeah thank you alan so things are developing really fast in this war and there's much to talk about but i thought there were three things we could focus on the continued ukrainian mobilization and resolve mobilization in russia and also these referendums that uh, russia have just conducted in in ukraine so with respect to continued ukrainian mobilization and resolve so from the very beginning of this war what took many by surprise though perhaps it was not so much a surprise for long-time scholars of ukrainian society and politics was the massive, rapid, and fierce mobilization of Ukrainians in defense of their homeland. And public opinion surveys show overwhelming support for the Ukrainian government's war aim, which is to fight until all of the territory occupied by Russia, including Crimea, is retaken, with some variation based on how close people are to the fighting and their sense of insecurity. There's also some evidence suggesting that people would be less willing to cede territory in the Donbas than Crimea, but in general, the vast majority would reject any kind of territorial concessions. Now, if anything, this resolve and this mobilization and support of the war aims is likely to have been strengthened after the counteroffensive success against Russian troops in the Kharkiv region earlier this month. Now, this brings me then to, to the second point on mobilization in Russia. Now, as a response to the Kharkiv counteroffensive, Putin called for a partial mobilization of 300,000 reservists in the quote special military operation. And you know, as we've seen, this partial mobilization has encouraged a new wave of counter mobilization in Russia. And we're seeing daily reports of anti war and anti draft protests. An estimated 200,000 people have left the country. Now, one of our colleagues in the department at the department here Dr. Katrina Tertichnaya she's studied protests in Russia for years and she emphasizes that we you know we've seen small scale protests against the war from the immediate aftermath of the invasion spread across the country and she's been she and her collaborators have been counting these protests and they counted over 300 anti regime protests since February up to the summer that's you know how far they they've come now in this ongoing wave of protests that we're seeing now against the war and well Against the war slash against the draft, the police has as it has since the beginning brutally cracked down on protesters. So just between September 21st and 26th, so you know this past week, or in the past week, the police arrested over 2,000, some say up to 2,400 individuals, and altogether in the first seven months of the war, the police arrested over 17,000 protesters. Now, one of the questions that many ask is, why don't we see more protest and mobilization of the scale that we saw in Euromaidan in Ukraine in 2014 or in Belarus in 2020? And the sort of scholars of the, of the, who are experts on Russian politics, uh, including uh, our colleague, uh, Katrina, points to at least two important reasons. So one, repression in Russia is extensive, and combined with that, The opposition lacks leadership. So, for example, the Navalny campaign coordinators were either imprisoned, like Navalny, or forced into exile since 2021. Now, in terms of public opinion in Russia, this is really hard to assess at the moment. But based on several collective polling efforts, Dr. Potichnaya she estimates that she and colleagues estimate that overall, since August, majorities have supported the actions of Russian military forces in Ukraine, around 75 percent. So, public support for the military actions in Ukraine have been high. We are now seeing a revival of protests and resistance against the regime. But a big question, and I don't have an answer to that question, is you know if Putin was forced out of power, would it be from more liberal forces or would that come from far right nationalists? Now, the third sort of point to talk about, and you know what's been going on lately in in, in this war, is the independence referendums. So in addition to the partial mobilization Putin's response to the Kharkiv counteroffensive was to go ahead with annexation referendums in Luhansk and Donetsk in the east and Zaporizhia and Kherson in the south. And you know we've all seen the pictures and reports of soldiers forcing people out to vote at gunpoint and the referendums showed what everyone expected right of this highly flawed and illegitimate process overwhelming support for annexation. Now there will be some people in some parts particularly in the parts that have been under Russian control since 2014 who are Russian oriented and would want to join Russia. But these referendums are not an accurate reflection of public opinion in these territories. They're alleged, you know they're not arranged under sort of free and fair circumstances and data from the Kyiv National Institute of Sociology based on surveys that are been conducted since 2014 onwards, shows that the majority of people you know, would not have you know, voted to join Russia if these were you know, conducted freely and fairly. Now, why hold these referendums? So these are not free and fair. And even you know, when slash if Russia formally annexes these territories, you know, the territories are not going to be recognized as being part of Russia by the international community. So there's, a, there's you know, at least a couple of reasons, and I'm sure there are more, but there are a couple of reasons for why you know, Russia is doing this. So Russia will use the referendum to justify that it's defending its own people, its own territory. And the audience here, for, you know, for those claims, is primarily domestic, right, within Russia. Another possible reason, also directed at domestic politics, is sort of to lock in anyone coming into power after Putin. And I think both of these reasons, and I'm sure there are others, That this is, I think, uncharted or not uncharted territory. That's not true. Russia held a you know, referendum like this in 2014, but we don't really know the reasons for, for this, you know, this referendum. But a consequence of these might be that it, any kind of compromise uh, would be harder. Uh, and it also might be a sign that Russia is sort of prepared to fight on. Uh,
0: that's a really helpful introduction. Thank you. And so you... You pointed out there that the referendums clearly are not accurate reflections of public opinion in these areas. You pointed out also that it's very difficult to engage to engage public opinion at the moment in Russia uh, because, um, of course, it's such a situation of repression. You also referred to research on public opinion in Ukraine. And of course, there too, there may be difficulties engaging public opinion for rather different reasons, that, that it's a situation of conflict of war. Can we rely on the information that we've got at the moment about public opinion in Ukraine?
1: Now, it's very important, of course, to try to get a sense of public opinion in Ukraine at the moment, certainly with respect to questions about the war, support for possible war outcomes. I mean, this is, you know, being fought in the name of the Ukrainian people. And as I said earlier, surveys at the moment show overwhelming support for the Ukrainian government's position. You know, there's some variation, but, you know, overwhelming support. There are, of course, you know, challenges related to doing public opinion surveys in Ukraine at the moment. Our survey in 2019, like most surveys in Ukraine, were done, done face-to-face, which at the moment, that's really challenging for safety and ethical reasons. There are certain parts in Ukraine where you can do it, but there are other parts where you cannot do face-to-face surveys at the moment, you know, in areas of fighting, in areas not controlled by the government. Most surveys that are being done at the moment now are done on the phone, on Ukrainian mobile networks, rather than face-to-face. Now, one important challenge, which you know, is absolutely central for our ability to draw conclusions about the Ukrainian population overall, is you know, how representative the sample is. So because the last census in Ukraine was in 2001, this was also a challenge prior to the war, but one that experienced polling companies like Keyes uh, has developed methods to overcome. But since the war, many millions have been displaced, and a small percentage of the population now also live in territories that, due to the war, are entirely out of reach for pollsters. Now, Volodymyr Panioto, who's the Keyes general director and probably the most experienced pollster in Ukraine, he's recently given presentations and talked about the challenges and the strategies for overcoming them. And he's relatively confident that Keyes' data that they're conducting at the moment with via phone surveys is representative of 95 to 97% of the population living on the territory of Ukraine that the government controls, but that is not Crimea and the Donbas where they haven't been able to do surveys since 2014. Now on the areas of the Donbas controlled by Russia since 2014 and Crimea, we did surveys there in 2019-20. when we were doing those surveys, we had to hire you know, a Russian survey company to do it, the Levada Center, because these were you know, not controlled by the Ukrainian government. And that, of course, we can't do at the moment due to, uh, you know, to sanctions on working with Russian companies. So we have no way of assessing what the, you know, I mean, I think it would also be incredibly difficult to do a survey there now, you know, with respect to, you know, would people answer respond, uh, respond you know, anyone mm-hmm. calling them up uh, at the moment. Anyway, so for, for anyone who's interested in sort of reading about you know these challenges and also how experienced pollsters try to overcome them. I would uh, recommend taking a look at the the website of the Kiev International Institute of Sociology, who really, you know, for a long time have you know thought about how to do this, and are uh, and are, are running you know regular surveys at the moment in Ukraine.
0: Great, we could talk about this for much much longer, Kristen, but we'd better move on, and we will come back to Ukraine and the implications of the current situation in Ukraine. But Lisa, let's turn to the climate crisis and. I guess, again, a very broad first question for you. What's been happening on the climate change front in recent recent months that listeners should be aware of?
2: Yeah, really delighted to be here talking to you today, Alan. And it's a good question. And It's been quite a busy year on the climate front. A couple of different things come to mind. One is the weather, right? There's been a lot of mm. weather this year, right? If we think back to July, you know, we experienced that unprecedented heat wave and research, recent science has shown that climate change made that particular weather event 10 times more likely. The Pakistan floods last month has kind of devastated about a third of the country, 16 million children affected by those floods. Again, recent uh, event attribution analysis has shown that climate change has played a significant event in in um, kind of causing both the 60-day 60, 60 weather event leading up to then the five-day weather event. And the science has really moved on to help us understand kind of the the likelihood that climate change has played a role in that. And what we heard there was the climate change minister, Sherry uh, Rehman, speaking very vocally about the fact that Pakistan has contributed very little to greenhouse gas emissions historically in present day, and yet is very much bearing the brunt of the impacts of this. And, and that's gotten a lot of attention around the world. And it's going to be particularly important, because Pakistan is currently chairing the group of 77 developing countries and China in the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, so the UN climate change regime's negotiations. So Pakistan is playing a particularly important role there this year. And so we're, we expect that to get a lot of attention at the forthcoming negotiations. Most recently, Storm Fiona, even in Canada, was kind of sweeping homes into the sea. So this is, you know, we're feeling these impacts of climate change today. This isn't something that's happening in the future. And only in the future is something that's very present and alive and, and starting to play. Uh, these storms are kind of starting to, to, th- to, to thrust themselves onto the political agenda, mm. you could say. I think the second thing that's happened this year is we had the publication of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So this is the group of hundreds of scientists that come together to look at the best available science that we have on all aspects of climate change, kind of where we're headed, what the impacts of climate change are going to be, what we can do to try and reduce vulnerability to those impacts, how much we can understand whether certain impacts are caused by climate change or not. Right? They all come together every four or five years. It's a long kind of process in pulling that science together. But some of those reports were put out earlier this year, and and it's really impressive to see how much the science has grown. And it's really given us a very clear understanding, not just that climate change is man-made, but that humans are now the main drivers of climate change. We also got a lot more understanding about the kind of potential impacts and the likelihood of those impacts kind of coming now and in the future. But also, I think one thing that I found quite hopeful was new science on assessing how to adapt to these impacts of climate change, right, and getting a better understanding of what is it that's exacerbating social vulnerability to these impacts. I think the third thing that's happened most recently was at the UN General Assembly in September, there was a lot of talk about climate change. You heard Antonio Guterres, the executive secretary, calling for developed countries to establish tax on the windfall profits of fossil fuel companies and to channel that funding towards those feeling the brunt of the energy crisis, but also those experiencing climate change loss and damage. You also had, for the first time, a nation pledging money towards climate change loss and damage. So Denmark pledged $13 million on loss and damage, and this has been a really sticky issue in the negotiations over the last 10 years. Yeah, and important important developments uh, there at the General Assembly. So a lot, a lot going on and, and more to come, I think, in this six weeks leading up to COP27 and Sharm El Sheikh in so November. W-
0: what has been happening with the COP process? And People will remember Alec Sharma's tears at the end of COP26 and that sense that things had been achieved but not enough had been achieved and there was a need for real progress over the next 12 months at that stage. Have they been making progress?
2: Yeah, I think we can, you know, if we look back to to COP26, I think we could call it incremental progress there, also highlighting very much the need for further progress. So at the close of that particular COP, Alex Sharma concluded that though the goal of keeping temperatures to 1.5 degrees is alive, he noted its pulse is weak, right? And at that point, one of the kind of major kind of gaps, I suppose, was this Kind of where and how much we need to be reducing emissions and how much we're countries are actually doing. And the UN has calculated that the kind of plans that have been put forward by countries in terms of how much they're going to reduce emissions currently put the world on track for 2.5 degrees Celsius of warming by the end of the century, right? So that's better than the four degrees trajectory the world was on before the Paris Agreement was struck, but it's still extremely, extremely dangerous, right? This means like the loss of entire nations. This means the loss of kind of coastal cities and communities, much worse extreme weather events. And so there's still a lot of work to do then. So that's going to be one of the major things on the agenda for for Sharm el-Sheikh is is really kind of seeing whether countries kind of further enhance their efforts to, to to meet reductions targets that need to be met. I think another major issue at COP 26 was about finance, right? So in 2009, developed countries promised to provide 100 billion dollars a year by 2020 to those countries that are kind of struggling with climate change impact impacts and also and also to support climate efforts in developing countries. And at the conclusion of the Glasgow COP, it, it was noted that with deep regret developed countries had failed to meet that mm. goal, right? About 80 billion a year was met. And so there was a lot of disappointment there. And climate finance continues to be one of those most, uh, most kind of contentious things. And
0: what's been the impact of the Ukraine crisis and the energy crisis over the last 12 months? or Well, I guess six months, eight months or so.
2: So this is really, I think, one of the most pressing challenges that the the world faces today, right? And particularly facing European leaders. How do you sever your dependence on Russian energy while also accelerating the fight against the climate crisis, right? In some ways, there's really a tension there of like, what is it that we're gonna do? And and we have seen in some European countries a kind of turning away from, from climate policy. I think there are really three main challenges here, right? One is reducing energy dependence on Russia, right? Which would then allow member states to embargo imports of Russian oil and possibly gas. The second is kind of building new partnerships with third countries to enhance European energy security for the longer term. And then the third issue in the EU, at least, is really kind of how do you bring the European Green Deal, right, which is a you know really fantastic package of measures. How do you implement that? How do you bring that to life, right? And so the Ukraine crisis has affected the possibility of all of those things and is kind of shifting, I suppose, the kind of geopolitical incentives for for addressing these problems. And some member countries believe that a turn to clean and renewable sources isn't going to be enough to reduce energy prices quickly enough, right? So some countries like Austria, Germany, Greece, Netherlands, Poland, and the Czech Republic have recently extended the life of their coal-fired power plants. Germany is exploring the possibility of building liquefied natural gas import terminals to replace Russian gas pipelines. France is currently considering plans to construct 14 new nuclear power plants, right? So this isn't what this is really what we want to see when, when thinking about kind of the urgency of the climate crisis. But on the other hand, you could see this as kind of the geopolitical push that the EU has needed to accelerate its transition away from dependence on fossil fuels, right? And so some within the EU certainly see this as an opportunity to focus minds on the climate challenge in the medium term, and to accept as inevitable what might otherwise have been daunting political costs. And this is what we've heard from the EU in recent communications. So I think it's all very much still kind of to be decided and, and looking at kind of where we're headed, where we're headed in the current mm. context. But yeah, it'll inter- it'll be interesting to see as well what happens at COP26, given the geopolitical pressures of the Russia-Ukraine conflict, but also disagreements between China and the US over Taiwan, which has really shaped the climate yeah. landscape as well. We will return well.
0: to those themes. Um, but let's bring Meg in before we do so. And it's been an extraordinary summer. Summer in British politics. We've had the ousting of one prime minister, the election of another, the death of a monarch after 70 years on the throne, and most recently, the unbelievable spectacle of a government-induced financial crisis and whatever happens, of course, between when we're recording this and when the episode actually goes out. So what do you think we should focus on, Meg, in terms of the state of politics and democracy in the UK at the moment?
3: Well, that's a terribly big That's a terribly big question. Yes, I mean, obviously we had that. The summer in itself was tumultuous with Johnson being forced out in July. He was forced out due to mass resignations by his ministers over his behaviour. There had previously been an attempt to topple him in a vote of no confidence within his parliamentary party, which had narrowly failed, but then he didn't last much longer than that. Had to say he was going. We then had the Conservative leadership contest over the summer to entertain us all. And then we had that incredible week—the week of the fifth of September. On Monday, we had a new Conservative Party leader. On Tuesday, we had a new Prime Minister. On Wednesday, we had a new Cabinet, and on Thursday, the Queen died, and bringing to the bring it to the end a seventy-year reign. And the the full ministerial lineup hadn't even been appointed at that point. I don't know whether you want to talk at all about the monarchy. You know that's a whole big subject in its own right. But basically, politics ground to a halt. Liz Truss had arrived on this kind of reforming agenda but found herself going to all of the various services of commemoration for the Queen and politics didn't get going again until after the funeral on the 19th of September. That was the Monday and then on the Friday we had the so-called mini-budget. With all of these tax-cutting measures and the removal of the, I mean, they'd already they'd already pre-announced the removal of the limits on bankers' bonuses and also the package to support people through the cost of living crisis. So, and that then sent markets plummeting, etc. As as we'll probably come come back to. If we look at this through the eyes of sort of the constitution and democracy, ultimately that is what brought Johnson down. I mean his his premiership was marked right from the very start by constitutional controversies so in autumn 2019 his prorogation of parliament that was ruled unlawful by the supreme court that was all over brexit there were other other controversies over brexit where he threatened not to comply with an act of parliament he threatened not to leave downing street as prime minister if the Commons voted no confidence in him and then we had the general election giving him a large majority and we were immediately into covid time and the pandemic brought controversies of its own, controversies about Parliament being cut out of decision-making, about really important regulations for lockdown, and parliamentarians themselves actually being excluded from taking part in Parliament. But, you know, that wasn't all. We also had controversies about his treatment of the civil service, his treatment of regulators, his appointments to the House of Lords. There were two successive holders of the post of Prime Minister's independent advisor on ethics who resigned over his behaviour. And then towards the end, we had the party gate scandal, so-called party gate scandal regarding parties in Downing Street where him and his staff were breaking his own lockdown regulations, which then spilled into allegations that he had misled Parliament over his behaviour and that's very serious because it's a breach of the ministerial code and he was referred to the Commons Privileges Committee for investigation. That nearly brought him down but the thing that ultimately brought him down was more allegations about how he had lied to his ministers about the behaviour, inappropriate behaviour by one of his whips. So. Johnson's premiership was all about constitutional propriety and breaking conventions and trashing institutions and so on. So you would have thought that the leadership contest that followed would have been dominated by those issues, but partly because of the cost of living crisis and I think partly because of sort of controversy about how to deal with Johnson and his legacy, those issues were not as dominant as you would have expected them to be. Even though when people called for his resignation, an awful lot of the ministerial resignation letters referred to questions of propriety and Johnson trying to sort of cling on to power led to him being accused of being trumpian, so there was sort of talk of this being a sign of democratic backsliding in in the u k but during the during the leadership contest, the focus was very much on other things and insofar as it touched on issues of of constitutional propriety. The signs from Liz Truss were not particularly good. So she refused to commit to reappointing an ethics advisor. She seemed to hint that the Privileges Committee into Boris Johnson should be halted. And then there was one moment when she did a major U-turn on policy. It was about regional public sector pay. But in doing so, she accused the media of having misrepresented her policy, which was just patently untrue. You know, she was blaming somebody else for her mistake and of course her rival who was the former chancellor Rishi Sunak accused her of fantasy economics and she also rubbished that and this all had a very sort of post-truth ring about it. And that's how we get to the mini budget. You know, she's tested out her economic ideas now. I think that in itself sits within a kind of framework of concerns about governmental structures and propriety and checks and balances on decision-making. Because one of the first acts in government was to sack the permanent secretary, the most senior official at the Treasury, who'd put in 30 years service. I don't think he'd done anything particularly wrong. He had helped Gordon Brown see us through the financial crisis of 2008 and nine, and he'd helped Rishi Sunak see us through the pandemic. And nobody particularly thought any of that was bad behavior, but she thought that he was too much of a supporter of economic orthodoxy. And so he was summarily sacked, even during the mourning period for the Queen. And then they refused to take the usual advice from the Office of Budget Responsibility on their plans. There was very little opportunity for MPs to scrutinise and discuss the plans, yet subsequently the pound sank. The Bank of England had to step in to buy government bonds. There have been talks about increased interest rates, which may well have happened by the time this goes to air. And the former governor of the Bank of England has accused the government of undercutting institutions, including working across the Bank of England and ignoring the Office of Budget Responsibility. So I think what we see is A sort of a repetition of some of the behaviour that we saw before. I think that this financial crisis, it's obviously about financial policy, which is not really my thing. But I think it demonstrates the purpose of checks and balances in our political institutions and how if you avoid scrutiny and shun the advice of independent experts, there's nothing to stop you presenting policy, which is going to be catastrophic and you can find yourself in real trouble. So, here we are with the financial crisis. I think there is a risk that it sort of drives people away from thinking about constitutional matters, which are very, very important. But actually, I see the two as being inextricably linked. You know, A lack of consideration for the proper means of making policy and for you know, independent experts and in checks and balances can take you to a very difficult place. That's an amazing
0: summary. Thank you so much. And is the problem here that those in power are not giving proper consideration, to use the words you just used there, Two checks and balances or is it just that the uk's majoritarian political system doesn't have enough checks and balances I and mean, do we need a change in kind of behavior and culture within our, our political system or do we need a change of the political system
3: i think that's a really interesting question it's one that lots of people are asking in the uk and i don't think that the uk system is perfect you know arguably there are things that should be strengthened. You know, I'm very much a supporter of the strengthening of Parliament, in, you know, the way that Parliament was sidelined during the COVID crisis, the way it was sidelined during Brexit. I think there are procedural changes that should be made in Parliament to give MPs more control of their own institution, for example, because it's too controlled by government. But I think it's a mistake to think that this is something about the structure of the UK constitution, because I think that some of the things we're seeing are echoed in other countries around the world, where you know most other places around the world have codified written constitutions which are you know supposed to be harder to change and yet we've seen the undermining of legislatures the undermining of judges threats to opposition parties undermining of independent media in countries you know numerous countries around the world this This concept of democratic backsliding whereby elected leaders seek to undermine and weaken the institutions that potentially constrain them and should be constraining them. And as I say, ensure that you make good, sensible policy, it's not a UK phenomenon. And and therefore, I think it is a cultural phenomenon and it's not one that that is unique to the UK by any means.
0: Great. Thank you, Meg. Let's now start to explore some of the cross-cutting themes across these three areas that we've been looking at. So we've introduced all sorts of thoughts here in relation to Ukraine, in relation to climate change and in in relation to the state of democracy in the UK, but not just the UK. I think one important cross-cutting theme across all of these issues is the economy and the impact of the economy on public attitudes as well. Let's just think a little bit about this in relation to each of these topics. Um, Kristen, Putin, I guess, is calculating that by harming the European economy, essentially, he will gradually erode the willingness of, of publics in Europe and elsewhere in the West to support Ukraine, to accept sacrifices in order to support Ukraine. Is he, is he making the right calculation there?
1: The public opinion in the West has generally been in favor of sanctions in Russia and, you know, favored support, military support to Ukraine. There is variation across countries and, you know, this autumn and winter will, you know, certainly be a test with, you know, the rising energy prices and cost of living. And you're right that, you know, Putin is, this is what he's betting on that that is going to sort of work to erode support for the war effort. And I think adding to that, we we know that as wars go on, however brutal they are, over time they tend to disappear from the front pages. you know other things take priority, and as a result, you know they they don't disappear, but they sort of go to the back of and not the front of people's minds. So there is a very real possibility that Ukraine will take backseat to domestic concerns, and there's, some survey evidence, not that much, but some suggesting that in the UK, for example, the cost of living crisis is affecting people's support for sanctions. But at the same time, there is also survey evidence suggesting that you know, people do link their economic problems, so energy prices, to the war. So that's one thing, so they're linking the two, right? So it's you know, in people's self-interest that this war uh, is not gonna go on, or it's certainly in their self-interest that this war is not gonna be won by Russia. This is also a war where the, you know, the aggressor is a major nuclear power on Europe's doorstep. So avoiding that Russia wins this war is in Europeans and sort of the West's self-interest from an economic perspective, but you know, also from a security uh, perspective. So I think for that reason, this war might, you know, will remain, or I think will, yeah, it's likely to remain a priority for publics in the West. And I think it's the same reasons that will sort of help preserve Western unity. In response
0: to it. And Meg, I guess we tend to think that economic troubles lead to public support for populism and strong rulers. And populism is closely tied to the sort of democratic backsliding that you were talking about earlier. So we might be concerned that if we're going into a period of greater economic problems and recession, not just in the UK but around the world, then that's going to spur a rise in populist sentiments, and perhaps the recent Italian elections fit into that mould. On the other hand, you could kind of say that, well, the populists have been shown to be wrong, at least in the UK, with the economic crisis that we seem to be in just at the moment. So you could see a turn to technocracy and a belief that, well, perhaps we need to put the experts in charge. Or maybe even we could see what I think you and I would probably hope for, which would be a sort of acknowledgement that actually we need liberal democracy, that actually we need to think about these things carefully and deliberate about them and have checks and balances, as you were discussing earlier. Where do you see public opinion as going in the UK and being pushed by economic developments?
3: Let me me say two things. First, I, I think cards on the table, I would see Boris Johnson as a populist. But it's very interesting, I think, that he was very, very hard line on the Ukraine war. So joining up to what, what Kristen was saying, you know, you could find yourself in a situation where public opinion in the UK was turning against support for Ukraine because of the problems that it's causing with energy supplies and energy prices. But actually, Boris Johnson was very, very robustly on the side of Ukraine. He did nothing to stoke those kind of sentiments. But undoubtedly, we are left with a very big problem with you know, the cost of living crisis and now, you know, rising interest rates and pressures on on the pound. But I think it's more likely to go the second of the two ways that you indicate. You're quite right that at times of economic difficulty, and we are undoubtedly entering times of economic difficulty, people often turn to extreme parties. But I think in the UK, it's sort of Extreme is a strong word, but, but it's it's sort of the, the right wing of the Conservative Party which has got us into this situation. and There are many, many moderate people in the Conservative Party or former members of the Conservative Party. On the day we're recording, a former Conservative MP has announced that he's going to be voting Labour at the next election. So I think it's the people at the right end of the spectrum who have ideologically gone for these tax cuts, which... Keir Starmer, the opposition leader, has been quite successfully able to paint, as have many other people painted, as primarily helping the rich. And so at a time when many people are struggling, the biggest benefits from this budget are the highest earners and the wealthiest people. Those those changes may even be have been reversed, perhaps, by the by the time this this goes out. But I think what that does is it encourages public opinion towards the center. I mean, as I said, you know, the, the the freezing out of experts and surprise, surprise, if you don't listen to economists, the markets don't react well to what you're doing. So this is not something to do with just some sort of cozy metropolitan elites who are telling you to follow economic orthodoxy. If you don't follow what the markets expect, then the markets have the power to punish you. And I suspect that that will drive people who are very worried about their mortgages as well as about their energy bills to support something a bit more centrist and boring and conventional.
0: And I'm wondering if there's any source of optimism, similar kind of optimism on the the climate front. We've tended to assume that economic downturns are bad times for climate action, but we're we seem to be, I mean, I'm not an expert on this, but we seem to be getting into a world where action on the economy and action on climate actually align to a much greater degree than was the case in the past. So can we actually be hopeful that maybe these economic problems will lead to positive climate change? Change on climate, I should say.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I I wouldn't want to necessarily make a causal claim, but I'm, for the first time studying climate, I'm feeling, I am feeling a little bit hopeful. And, And it's exactly as you say, you know, in... Paris 7 years ago 195 countries came together and agreed to shift the way the global economy works right that and that wasn't going to be an easy <laughs> easy thing to do and it's not easy and, and kind of we're failing on all kinds of fronts but but that that's pretty amazing in a lot of ways and what we're seeing is governments kind of doing their best in a lot a lot of them in a lot of ways a lot a lot of them are but but also a lot of interesting kind of action by non state actors. So one of the things to come out of Glasgow last year was the launch of the Glasgow Financial Alliance for net zero. And this is a group of organizations responsible for financial assets worth $130 trillion coming together as a kind of forum for leading financial institutions to accelerate the transition to a net zero global economy right? That, that's, a, that's kind of an amazing amount of power and wealth. So it'll be interesting to see what kind of happens in the next few weeks on, on what they kind of report, talking about the measures that they're taking and best practice ahead of COP. And then thinking more locally, like, you know, thinking about the Labour Party conference, right, which had the strapline of a kind of fairer, greener future, you know, it's all about green growth for this country. And so the discourse is kind of changing from the UN level to party politics. We're seeing more and more climate action on the streets, kind of public awareness is really there. Last year, a survey by the Office of National Statistics before COP26 suggested that 75% of adults in Britain said they were worried about the impact of climate change, right? So we have levels of public awareness
0: that we've, you know, are are really... And this is not just the UK, is it?
2: Yeah, that's right. I think YouGov poll in September 2022 ahead of the UN General Assembly suggested that climate change is the most important challenge facing the world for many, many people across the 22 countries Mm -hmm. that were surveyed there. So this is something that has kind of is persisting at the top of the political agenda at the moment. And Mm -hmm. so yeah, I think there's some room
0: for optimism. Right. So public opinion is important in all of these issues geopolitics is, is is very important as well of course and just before we close i wonder we started to explore a little bit the effects of the ukraine conflict on climate politics in the short term and lisa you were hinting at the fact that there are long term considerations here around you know what if the world is becoming a more fragmented world with you know russia and the west at, at loggerheads at the very least, potentially China, if China decides to act in, in Taiwan, becoming a pariah state from the perspective of the West as well. So, you know, if we're moving towards a more multipolar world again, I guess, then potentially could it be the case that climate action becomes harder to coordinate or are we rather maybe moving in a different direction kristen what do you think about where the geopolitical situation the geopolitical structure is moving
1: i think you lay out two very two plausible uh, or possible options and i i don't know which one of these it is where we're we're going to go i mean i i I think we're going towards a more multipolar world, more po- polarization, but I'm, I'm not sure that that prevents some collaboration when it comes to efforts to tackle climate change.
2: Yeah, it's an interesting question, Alan. I, I, You know, Russia has never been at the heart or a driver of major climate action at the global level, right? They've kind of been a, a, a quiet player or obstructionist generally historically. And so, again, I feel relatively hopeful that despite these kind of geopolitical tensions, that progress can be made and it feels really important that particularly those countries that have benefited most from these historic greenhouse gas emissions begin to lean into this idea of taking responsibility for that in whatever form that might take and and you know we are starting to see that i you know i'm i'm kind of in conversations with civil servants and policymakers in kind of small middle power type countries that are really starting to pay attention to you know this agenda particularly of loss and damage and um, are not waiting for agreement on that they're they're going ahead and kind of pledging money in Glasgow we saw Scotland we saw a, a province in Belgium committing money to, you know Denmark earlier this year that I mentioned and so there is something about you know collaboration particularly at the global level is imperative but it's not the only way of taking action And so while coordination and cooperation is really the best way of getting things done at the geopolitical level, it's not the only way. And there's something about leaders playing a role in taking responsibility in both mitigating greenhouse gas emissions and also offering support to those countries that are bearing the brunt of those impacts already.
0: Great. I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much, Lisa. Kristen and Meg, we've attempted to cover a huge amount. We've opened up all sorts of questions. We haven't managed to answer them all, but we've drawn on your expertise in all sorts of interesting ways. Of course, listeners have the advantage of us of knowing what's happened in the week between when we speak and when when they're listening. So who knows what has happened during that period? But I hope we've nevertheless given some interesting food for thought there. If you'd like to hear more on these topics, Kristen, Lisa and Meg have all appeared on previous episodes of UCL Uncovering Politics where we have explored other aspects of their research and you can find all of those episodes on our website. This has been the first episode of UCL Uncovering Politics for the new academic year. We're looking forward to another season exploring the UCL research that informs current political debates on topics such as automation in the labour market, the power of global tech companies and how sexist attitudes shape voting behaviour. Next week, we're exploring the role of private companies and non-profit organisations in planning and delivering public services. What are the costs and benefits? And what do the public think? Remember to make sure you don't miss out on that or other future episodes of UCL Uncovering Politics. All you need to do is subscribe. You can do so on Apple, Google Podcasts or whatever podcast provider you use. I'm Alan Rennick. This episode was researched by Connor Kelly and produced by Eleanor kingwell bannum Our theme music is written and performed by John Mann. This has been UCL Uncovering Politics. Thank you for listening.